Conrad Anker and David Roberts, in their book The Lost Explorer, sum up the first Everest expedition like this. They write, quote, The 1921 reconnaissance of Everest, pursued through the monsoon summer and into the autumn season, was in many respects a colossal mess. The party's talents were wildly uneven, with several over-the-hill, out-of-shape veterans in leadership positions. From the start, Mallory was at serious odds with the team's leader, Charles Howard Burry, and its climbing leader, Harold Rayburn, both much older than he. Of the former, he wrote, He is not a tolerant person. He is well-informed and opinionated and doesn't at all like anyone else to know things he doesn't know. Of Rayburn, he is dreadfully dictatorial about matters of fact and often wrong. So, a motley assortment of mountaineers and travelers, already torn by jealousies and disparate ambitions, stumbled towards Everest in the wrong season, end quote. Despite the obstacles they faced, the men of the 1921 expedition achieved a great deal. They mapped the northern side of Everest more thoroughly and accurately than had ever been done. They were beginning to understand how the weather worked on Everest as well, which is every bit as important as knowing the physical topography. They established relationships with the local leaders and began to train the first generation of Sherpa climbers. And, with the death of Scottish scientist Alexander Kellis, they learned how dangerous the altitude could be for Westerners. Most importantly of all, they had identified the best route to the summit via the North Pole. Yet, if the 1921 expedition could be described as a colossal mess, the return expedition the following year could only be described as a catastrophe, one which would cost seven men their lives. My name is Megan. This is Death Zone. Episode 3, Home of Devils. Welcome and thank you for listening. This podcast is dedicated to exploring the tragedy and heroism of history's most incredible disasters, from the highest mountains to the deepest seas, from ancient ruins to the cutting edge of scientific discovery. This is the third episode of a six-part series about the early exploration of Mount Everest, beginning with the first measurements and finishing with George Mallory and Sandy Irvin's doomed attempt to reach the summit in 1924. In this episode, a new expedition travels to Mount Everest to launch the first serious summit attempt, but conflicting egos and agendas frustrate their efforts, and a reckless final push triggers a horrific disaster. If you have any questions, comments, or corrections, please email me at deathzonepodcast at gmail.com, and you can also follow me on Instagram at deathzonepodcast. Following the arduous and frustrating 1921 expedition, British climbing ace George Mallory wanted nothing to do with Everest. In his mind, the entire mission was a disappointment. His goal was the summit, and he succeeded in gaining only a few hundred feet up the North Ridge. He blamed the expedition's failure on poor leadership and planning. Mallory had never liked the expedition's official leader, Charles Howard Burry, nor the nominal leader of the climbing team, Howard Rayburn. His personal dislike of the men notwithstanding, they were both evidently too old to be tackling a mountain like Everest. Before the expedition even returned to London, the Everest Committee was planning the second expedition. The committee invited Mallory to participate, but Mallory equivocated. Upon returning home, he gave public lectures to generate interest in a return expedition and to earn himself an income now that he was no longer employed as a teacher. 
His lecture series was a resounding success. The British public couldn't get their fill of Everest. Mallory was elevated to celebrity status in his home country, and the pressure for him to return to Everest increased with every lecture. As Mallory struggled to reconcile his role as the face of the Everest endeavor, the Everest committee organized a new team. Charles Howard Burry was out as expedition leader, not necessarily because of any failing on his part, despite what Mallory thought, but because the committee had always intended General Charles Bruce to lead. He was only absent in 1921 because of his military responsibilities. Now, in 1922, he was free to participate. Unlike Howard Burry, Bruce had a reputation as a climber. He had been on the earliest K2 and Nangaparbat expeditions. He knew the Himalaya and he knew its people. But decades had passed since his last expedition. He was in his 50s now and suffering the lingering effects of injuries sustained at the Battle of Gallipoli. His spirit was willing, but his flesh was weak, as the saying goes. From the outset of the 1922 expedition, the summit was the goal, not scientific inquiry. In fact, Alexander Heron's geological studies had nearly derailed the entire endeavor. The Tibetans accused Heron of digging up and stealing precious stones. They also claimed his activities had disturbed the evil spirits, which had taken out their wrath on the locals in the form of a scarlet fever outbreak. The second charge cannot be corroborated, but Heron was certainly innocent of stealing precious stones. Regardless, the British promised to send no more scientific expeditions to disturb the spirits, the animals, or the hermits who lived in the region. Climbing would take precedence, so a climbing team needed to be carefully selected. Mallory, if he was to rejoin the expedition, wanted seven experienced climbers in addition to himself. One of them, he insisted, must be George Finch. Finch was one of the world's premier alpine climbers and an expert on altitude sickness, who had conducted research on behalf of the late lamented Alexander Kellis, who had died en route to Everest the previous year. Finch was excluded from the 1921 expedition ostensibly for health reasons, but a shadow lingered over the decision to remove him. Political and personal considerations may have mattered more than physical fitness. George Finch was a rough-and-ready, headstrong, outspoken Australian, not the gentleman climber the committee wanted but Mallory insisted and Finch joined the team. In addition to his experience and his knowledge of altitude's effects on the human body, Finch was a leading authority on bottled oxygen. The use of bottled oxygen has always been controversial. Then, as now, some mountaineers see it as essentially cheating, or at the very least, an artificial advantage. When first ascents of the world's highest peaks are discussed, the first person to reach a summit without the use of bottled oxygen earns a special distinction. There is a practical consideration as well. Bottled oxygen allows less experienced, less skilled, and less physically fit climbers to attempt dangerous mountains. In the 1920s, many climbers, including General Bruce and even George Mallory, saw the use of oxygen as unsporting, which was a central preoccupation of upper-crust British men at the time. And there were unknown variables. No one could predict with certainty what might happen to a climber in the low pressure at 29,000 feet. Researchers, including Kellis, had experimented on pilots during the First World War, and the oxygen equipment that would be used on Everest in 1922 was based on technology developed by the Royal Air Force. However, those experiments could not factor in the extreme physical stresses the climber must first endure, nor the fact that a climber could not descend to safety in a matter of moments the way a pilot might. Skeptics also questioned whether the benefits of oxygen would outweigh the burden of carrying heavy metal tanks on one's back up a mountain. Despite objections, the decision lay with the Everest Committee, and their singular goal was to declare a British subject the first person to conquer Everest. If they did not use every possible advantage to reach the summit, another nation would. 
The other climbers to depart from England with Mallory and Finch included Arthur Wakefield, a medical doctor who joined the team as a climber. Howard Somerville, who was also a medical doctor in addition to being an accomplished climber, joined as well. John Knoll, the explorer and photographer, was invited to document the entire expedition using an exciting new medium, the cinematograph, i.e. film. And Into the Silence, Wade Davis writes, quote, The two films Knoll made, Climbing Mount Everest in 1922 and The Epic of Everest in 1924, transformed the challenge of the mountain into a national mission, a symbol of imperial redemption, even as they elevated Mallory into the realm of the Titans, end quote. In addition to modern marvels like bottled oxygen and film, one more new development first introduced to the world of mountaineering in 1922 would eventually become essential gear for Himalayan climbing, the down jacket. Again, the innovative George Finch was responsible. Himalaya climbers already use sleeping bags lined with eiderdown, the soft breast feathers of female eider ducks who use them to insulate their eggs. So Finch ordered a quilted jacket stuffed with eiderdown to be custom made. His teammates ridiculed his comical appearance, but he had the last laugh as he remained warm while they shivered in their wool sweaters and tweed jackets. The 1922 expedition included a five-man support team. Colonel William Strutt was chosen as General Bruce's second-in-command. Strutt was a capable climber, but, like so many others on the team, was past his physical prime. The expedition also employed three transport officers, John Morris, a veteran of the war in Afghanistan who would double as interpreter, Colin Crawford, a member of the Indian Civil Service who had experience climbing in the Alps, and Jeffrey Bruce, General Charles Bruce's nephew who had recently been awarded for gallantry in combat. The last member of the support team was Dr. Thomas Longstaff, who would serve as the expedition's medical officer, despite the presence of two other doctors. Upon arriving in India, the expedition picked up two more climbers, Henry Mooreshead, who had been a surveyor in 1921 but now joined as a full-time climber, and Major Edward Norton, called Teddy, a war hero with experience in the Himalaya, who recovered from hemorrhoid surgery just in time to join the team. In Darjeeling, India, the 1922 team encountered serious problems almost immediately. Finch's oxygen equipment failed to arrive on time, and the rest of the expedition embarked without him and Crawford. The climbers proceeded by a shorter route than the one they had taken the previous year, while the supplies would follow by an easier route. The expedition was, if anything, more heavily laden than in 1921. General Bruce repeatedly entreated the Everest Committee for more money for more supplies, especially food, believing that the lack of appetizing and nutritious food in 1921 had contributed to the poor health of the expedition members. Likewise, John Knoll's photographic equipment and, eventually, Finch's oxygen equipment needed to be transported, a much more daunting prospect than it would be today. More supplies meant more porters and animals to carry them. More porters to carry supplies meant more food was required to feed the additional porters. The last mission's worst mistake had been to depart too late in the season. The team arrived at Everest at the start of the monsoon, which on Everest means heavy snowfall and blizzards which last days. The 1922 team set out earlier, hoping to arrive at the mountain in early May. Unfortunately, this meant the team had to cross Tibet in late winter. The constant wind brutalized climbers and porters alike as they trekked across the bleak Tibetan plateau. During one particularly fierce storm, five porters were separated from the group and forced to spend the night exposed to the storm with no shelter. Initially, the men were given up for dead although they miraculously survived their ordeal and were found the next day. These men were, in a sense, the forerunners of later climbers like Beck Weathers and Lincoln Hall, who would be left for dead on Everest, yet somehow survive an open bivouac. As the march continued, the weather and the altitude took a serious toll on the British team. 
Dysentery was the typical complaint, as well as bouts of vomiting. Somerville fell ill during an attempt to summit a lesser peak called Sangari, and the attempt was abandoned at Mallory's insistence. The man who suffered most was, regrettably, Dr. Longstaff, the medical officer. With both Somerville and Longstaff ill, Wakefield had to temporarily assume the role of mission doctor. When the expedition reached the hard scrabble town of Campazong, they paused at the simple stone cairn that marked the grave of Alexander Kellis to pay respects to the first man to die in pursuit of the Everest dream. Gathered in respectful silence with the Himalaya looming beyond the dusty plains, they must have been reminded of the danger surrounding them and the danger awaiting them. There are no guarantees in the pursuit of Everest, not even survival. The expedition's arrival at the Rongbuk Glacier should have been a cause for celebration, but the problems only mounted. The porters went on strike, refusing to continue closer to the mountain for religious reasons. They believed this was an inauspicious time to approach Chumalungma. The spirits were particularly restless and aggressive this time of year. In the modern era, tradition dictates climbers attempting to scale the mountains participate in a puja, a Buddhist ritual paying homage to the mountain and asking for blessings, as well as making offerings of appeasement to any spirits who might wish them harm. This ritual is performed by a lama, a Buddhist priest from the Rongbuk Monastery to the north or the Tenboji Monastery to the south. Prayer flags of blue, white, green, red, and yellow inscribed with prayers are strung out to blow in the wind and carry those prayers high into the mountains. If you've ever seen footage of climbers throwing flour into the air or rubbing flour on one another's faces, that was a puja. It's an important religious ritual for Buddhist team members and even non-Buddhist climbers participate out of respect for their teammates, respect for their host culture, and because it's wise to take every precaution when climbing in the Himalayas. The porters who had refused to work were difficult to replace because it was planting season in the area and many locals had to tend to their farms. Those porters were paid for their services and sent on their way. Those who remained were now responsible for transporting all the supplies and equipment to a series of base camps. These camps were established along the edges of the glaciers leading to the final base camp at the foot of the North Coal. This final base camp was called Camp 3 in 1922, but it's called Advanced Base Camp today. Before I continue with the efforts of the 1922 expedition, I want to describe what the northern approach to Everest is like for modern climbers. Base Camp, also called Chinese Base Camp, is located on the rocky moraine at the end of the Rongbuk Glacier, similar to where it was located in 1922. From here, climbers undergo the process of acclimatization, moving from Base Camp down the Rongbuk Glacier through the gap which connects the Rongbuk Glacier to its tributary, the East Rongbuk Glacier, a hike of about six hours for a fit climber. When climbers reach the East Rongbuk Glacier, they follow the lateral moraine, which runs alongside it. The glacier itself is a maze of ice pinnacles, seracs, and crevasses. Camp 2, called Interim Base Camp in the modern era, is located beside the East Rongbuk Glacier. Farther down the glacier, the East Rongbuk Glacier meets the Changsi Glacier, and a curious phenomenon occurs. The slow process of both glaciers moving towards one another pushes up the earth between them, creating a path down the middle called the Miracle Highway. Beyond Interim Base Camp is Advanced Base Camp, which is situated beside the head of the East Rongbuk Glacier, where the glacier meets the east face of the North Coal. The North Coal, in case you've forgotten, is a saddle ridge which connects Everest to her northern neighbor, Changsi. The hikes from Camp 1 to Camp 2, and then to Camp 3, along the glacier or down the Miracle Highway, aren't challenging in the technical sense, but a one-way trip can take anywhere from six to nine hours. The ground underfoot is covered with loose, shifting rock, the kind of terrain where one might twist an ankle with every step. 
A more serious obstacle than the terrain is the altitude. Between camps one and three, the altitude increases 4,000 feet, a dramatic shock even to a hardy Himalayan body. Given these factors, it's not surprising that a second porter strike occurred farther along the glacier. The remaining porters, now burdened by additional loads, refused to work under such brutal conditions. Eventually, the expedition leaders and the porters reached terms, but the two porter strikes meant everything took longer than it ought to, and the window for climbing to the summit would be even narrower than originally supposed. Before any attempts could be made on the summit, the marching order needed to be established. The decision fell to the expedition leader, General Bruce. He pronounced Mallory, Somerville, and Moorshead would make the first attempt at the summit without supplemental oxygen. If that attempt failed, Finch would have a chance to test his method with Norton as his partner. But illness continued to afflict the team. Dr. Longstaff collapsed at Camp 2 and was evacuated to Camp 1, where he was placed under the care of Wakefield, the doctor-turned-climber-turned-doctor once again. The team feared Dr. Longstaff might die like Kellis the year before, although Longstaff would survive his illness. But if Longstaff was the most debilitated by the altitude and the harsh conditions, he was not alone. Morris and Crawford also fell ill. Mallory was injured attempting another minor peak and was fortunate not to have broken his foot. The porters, too, were suffering, not necessarily from altitude sickness, but from outbreaks of infectious diseases like influenza. Some Tibetans interpreted this as a sign of the mountain spirit's anger and abandoned the expedition. Finch, too, became ill. Strutt assigned Norton, Finch's climbing partner, to instead accompany Mallory, Somerville, and Moorshead on the initial assault. This would leave Finch partnerless since the only remaining climber, Wakefield, was now the de facto medical officer. Mallory's team would begin with an ascent up the east face of the North Cold to Camp 4. If you'll recall from the previous episode, the route planned by Mallory required ascending to the lower shelf of the North Cold, then ascending Everest's long, steep North Ridge, then finally following the Northeast Ridge to the summit. On May 12th, Mallory undertook the arduous process of creating a route up the face of the North Cold wall that heavily laden Sherpas could follow. Again, I want to pause to describe climbing the North Cold in the modern era. The modern Camp 1, which was called Camp 4 in 1922, is situated on the lower of two shelves on top of the North Cold. To reach it, climbers ascend the nearly 2,000-foot hanging glacier which spills down the eastern face of the Cold. They move slowly and deliberately, crossing crevasses and avoiding unstable seracs when possible, and eventually reach a vertical wall of ice. Climbers scale the final pitch, the vertical ice wall one step at a time, kicking footholds into the ice with the tips of their crampons, steadying themselves with their ice axes. Once the climbers reach camp on the ridge, they rest in tents pounded by howling winds, then descend again to recuperate at lower elevation. Before a summit attempt, northern climbers repeatedly scale the North Coal for acclimatization and practice. Mallory didn't have modern boots or crampons, so instead, he cut steps into the ice wall with his axe to overcome this last pitch. The order of climbing today is reversed from the order in 1922. In the modern era, the Sherpas create routes for the climbers, using fixed ropes, ice stakes and screws, and even aluminum ladders. In 1922, it was the other way around. Although the Sherpas had the right genes for climbing, they did not yet possess the skills or experience of modern Sherpas. Everything about the 1922 expedition, whether equipment or techniques, was primitive by modern standards. We have already discussed the novelty of wearing a down jacket, which earned Finch so much teasing, but many modern necessities of climbing had not yet come into fashion. 
Kerosene-fired primus stoves, which are used to melt snow for water, as well as cook food at camp, existed in 1922, but they were considered too bulky to be carried up the mountain itself, so less efficient alcohol burners were used. Carabiners were a recent invention and not yet considered essential. Metal crampons were deemed impractical because the straps used to affix the crampons to the climber's leather boots cut off the circulation to the toes. Modern climbers wear double boots, a boot within a hard outer shell which mitigates this issue. In Mallory's day, climbers wore hobnailed leather boots. These boots were effective on ice but not on bare rock and could not be taken on and off like crampons. The Jumar, another tool ubiquitous on Everest today, which allows climbers to ascend while securely attached to a fixed rope, had not yet been invented, nor had any belay devices which allow one climber to secure another during a climb. Lastly, climbers a century ago used ropes made of hemp or flax, not nylon, which was not invented until years later. In his book, The Third Pole, climber Mark Sinnett describes the ropes used by Mallory, quote, Climbers of that era used thin ropes made of hemp and other natural fibers, more similar to clotheslines than modern climbing ropes. These cords were easily severed and generally used as a token last-ditch safety measure. Climbers and mountaineers made a point to never actually put their ropes to the test. On May 18, 1922, Mallory, Somerville, Morshead, and Norton awoke in their tents at Camp 4 on the North Pole to begin their summit attempt. Their plan was to ascend as far as possible, spend one night on the mountain at an as-yet-unestablished Camp 5, then make their way to the final summit the next day. Even if this plan had not been hopelessly naive, it was nevertheless destined to fail right from the outset, as the problems which had bedeviled the 1922 expedition since day one followed the climbers up the mountain. Four of the nine Sherpas who had camped with the British climbers were unfit to climb that morning due to altitude sickness. The four climbers would have to make do with only five Sherpas to carry the supplies. The tinned spaghetti, which was meant to serve as the camp's breakfast, had accidentally been left outside. The food needed to be thawed before it could be cooked and eaten, a process which took much longer using their weak alcohol-burning stoves than it would have with a hotter-burning primus stove. This delay cost them precious time. Once the team began to climb the North Ridge, they found the route much easier than they had expected. Despite the relatively easy terrain, the climbers still managed to suffer a misfortune along the way. As the team was resting, Mallory accidentally knocked Norton's pack, containing his extra warm clothes, off the edge of the mountain. The other climbers had warm clothing to spare, however, which was fortunate. The North Ridge isn't particularly difficult. It's a long, monotonous slog up a steep, snowy pitch that takes an entire day to ascend under ideal conditions. The greatest threat is the cold. The North Ridge is fully exposed to the freezing wind. In 1922, the wind was so unbearable that the team was forced to try a new route along the leeward side of the ridge, a much more difficult path. Morshead was suffering and straggled far behind the others, accompanied by Sherpas. The team resigned to make Camp 5 at 25,000 feet, about 1,000 feet lower than they had intended. Since Morshead needed rest, the Sherpas needed time to descend to Camp 4 before dark, and all of them were suffering the earliest stages of frostbite. Finding a decent camping site on the steep ridge was nearly impossible and the climbers had to pile stones to create flat terrain. They spent a miserable night sleeping at uncomfortable angles, but, in doing so, set the record for the world's highest campsite. The next morning, May 19th, after Mallory and Norton left their tent to begin the day's preparations, one of them, probably Mallory again, accidentally knocked yet another rucksack down the mountain. Fortunately, this one was retrieved. As the team set out to climb as high as they could, knowing they probably would not reach the summit, Morris had recused himself. He knew he lacked the strength to continue and didn't want to jeopardize the others. He would remain at Camp 5 alone. 
Mallory, Somerville, and Norton continued upward, hoping at least to make the Northeast Ridge. But as happens at such altitude, the climbing became slower and more difficult with each step. Around 2.30 p.m., the agreed-upon turnaround time, the men were still 400 feet or so below the Northeast Ridge. If they pressed on, even if they somehow found the strength, they would be stranded on the Northeast Ridge when night fell. The men drank a toast celebrating their new world altitude record, then descended to Camp 5, where Morrishead was waiting. No one wanted to sleep on the rocky ground at Camp 5 another night. Morrishead insisted he was well enough to descend to Camp 4 on the North Coal. So, at roughly 4.30 p.m., with three hours of daylight remaining, the four climbers began a descent which should have taken no more than an hour and a half. Yet Morrishead was in worse shape than he admitted and moved at a snail's pace. His feet were swollen and frostbitten, and each step must have been agonizing if he could feel his feet at all. His cognitive function was impaired by the lack of oxygen. Sometimes he had to be persuaded to keep moving. Other times he had to be persuaded not to attempt suicidally dangerous maneuvers. The difficulty of getting Morsehead down the mountain was compounded by another complication. During their night at Camp 5, snowfall had covered the tracks they had made during their ascent. The route they climbed down was far more treacherous than the route they had climbed up the day before. All four men were roped together, a common practice at the time, with Mallory in the lead, chopping new steps in the snow, slowing them down even further. Somerville brought up the rear. Morsehead was positioned between Somerville and Norton to achieve maximum safety in case he fell. Which is precisely what happened. As Mallory was cutting steps in a snow gully, Morshead, his feet completely numb with frostbite, lost his footing and slipped. At the very moment he slipped, Somerville was himself taking a step. Morshead began to slide down the mountain and the off-balance Somerville was yanked off his feet. Now two men were on a runaway descent. As they passed Norton, he was pulled down as well and began to slide towards the abyss at the edge of the ridge. Mallory, the only man with his feet still under him, had no time to think. He stabbed his ice axe as deep into the snow and ice as he could, and, with only a second before the slack rope around his waist was pulled taut, he managed to coil it around the head of the axe. If the thin hemp rope snapped, the other three men would fall thousands of feet to their deaths, their bodies broken upon the rocks of the Wrongbook Glacier. If the axe did not hold, Mallory would fall with them. Miraculously, the improvised belay held. Describing this incident in Lost on Everest, David Roberts writes, quote, Almost never in mountaineering history has one man held three fallen companions with nothing more solid than an ice axe belay. The rare instances have become legendary deeds, end quote. But when Mallory wrote about this incident, he was modest and didn't even name himself as the man whose quick thinking had saved three lives and likely his own as well. Now by this point, Moore's head was functionally an invalid and was supported by Norton. Fortunately, they found the stone steps they had used to ascend the day before. Even so, their pace was agonizingly slow, and a cloudy, moonless night had fallen when they reached the North Cold at last. Days earlier, Mallory had tied guide ropes to lead them through the maze of crevasses on the upper shelf of the North Cold and back to Camp 4 on the lower shelf. Now, the ropes were buried under fresh snow. Somerville lit a candle in a lantern, which provided their only light source as they practically crawled along the upper shelf. Finally, they reached the edge of the shelf and lowered Moore's head down on a rope. The men were exhausted and dehydrated, but when they entered their tents, they discovered that the Sherpas had accidentally taken the cooking supplies down to Camp 3. They could not melt snow for water. When they reached Camp 3 the following day, after a painstaking four-hour descent under the glare of the sun, they had been more than 24 hours without water. The men were so thirsty that the first three to reach the base of the coal pulled Mallory, bringing up the rear, off his feet as they rushed towards camp. 
Mallory was able to avoid death or serious injury only by using his ice axe to slow his descent down the 80-foot final slope. The three men whose lives he had saved had nearly killed him again. With the oxygenless summit attempt to failure, it was George Finch's turn. All he lacked was a team. Two men volunteered. Jeffrey Bruce, the general's brave nephew, who had never climbed a mountain in his life, and a Nepalese Gurkha soldier named Tejbir Bora. The three men, using Finch's oxygen system, made remarkable progress up the challenging North Coal Wall to Camp 4. After spending the night on the lower shelf, they embarked the next morning with their heavy oxygen equipment, easily overtaking the Sherpas who carried the other supplies from Camp 4 to Camp 5 without supplemental oxygen. Between Camps 4 and 5, Finch and his team began to experience one of the major issues that had tormented Mallory and his team, the relentless wind on the exposed North Ridge. Also like Mallory and his team, the wind forced them to move off the ridge to establish their own Camp 5. Their choice of campsite, though lacking in comfort, likely saved their lives as a terrible storm descended on the men. They remained awake in the tent all night, terrified, unable to sleep, constantly shifting their weight to make sure the wind did not get under the tent and lift it right off the mountain. During a brief lull in the storm, Finch managed to sneak out long enough to secure the tent with ropes. But there was nothing to do except pray that the wind would not tear the fabric of the tent to shreds with its ferocity. Around noon the following day, the storm had not abated, and in fact threw a stone with such force that it tore a hole in the tent, allowing the freezing cold air inside. An hour later, though, the storm at last subsided, and not a moment too soon. The men had a choice to make. They could return to Camp 4, or they could attempt the summit the next day without food, since the Sherpas had not been able to reach their camp that morning. To their great surprise, however, six Sherpas appeared at 6 p.m. with food, thermoses full of hot tea, and most importantly of all, cigarettes. The three climbers decided they would remain at Camp 5 and attempt the summit the next day. That evening, Finch tried an experiment. He took a deep breath of oxygen right there in the tent to see what effect it would have. To his delight, he felt warmer almost immediately as his body stopped instinctively hoarding heat at its core. Jeffrey Bruce and Tejbeer were likewise instantly revived. Finch at last realized the connection between oxygen and body heat, but the breathing apparatus he had designed had a rubber tube at the end through which the oxygen flowed. The climber would bite down on the tube to stop the flow of oxygen, then relax his bite when he needed to take a breath. This was effective only if the men were awake. They couldn't do it in their sleep. The ever-resourceful Finch was able to rig a mechanism whereby all three men could breathe a small but continuous supply of oxygen during the night. They were finally able to get some restful sleep. The following day, the three men launched their ascent. The plan was for Tejbir to accompany Finch and Jeffrey Bruce as high as the juncture of the northeast shoulder, carrying spare oxygen, then turn around and leave the oxygen bottles with the two British climbers. But the plan fell apart almost immediately as Tejbir collapsed only a few hundred feet from camp. His companions were able to revive him and send him back to Camp 5 alone. Finch and Bruce continued to climb, but the wind rose again. They left the North Ridge and moved laterally across Everest's yellow band until they reached a position where they could ascend to the North Ridge. At some point during this ascent, they beat Mallory's team's altitude record. Finch must have felt vindicated, having been proven right about the benefits of supplemental oxygen. At that moment of triumph, disaster struck once again. A delicate glass tube within Bruce's breathing apparatus broke and his supply of oxygen immediately ceased. Bruce began to panic, as a scuba diver at the ocean floor might panic if their airflow suddenly ceased. 
As I said before, in 1922, even scientists and physicians who believed a climber might be able to survive a climb to the summit without bottled oxygen didn't know whether a climber would survive if their oxygen supply was disrupted. In his terror, Bruce nearly fell, but Finch managed to catch him. He let Bruce breathe from his own mouthpiece as he set about diagnosing and repairing Bruce's apparatus using a spare tube he had brought along in case of an emergency. He succeeded in restoring Bruce's oxygen and, simultaneously, proved that a climber at altitudes suddenly deprived of oxygen could, in fact, continue breathing. But Finch knew his summit bid was ended. They were both exhausted and Bruce was badly rattled. Before they descended, however, Finch looked towards Northeast Ridge and identified two large stone formations that would need to be scaled or traversed en route to the summit pyramid. Even at that distance, in those circumstances, Finch knew those two steps might prove to be the greatest technical climbing challenge en route to the summit. He had gotten the first clear look at what we today call the first and second steps, which have defeated many climbers in the years since. There's also a third step, although it was not recognized as its own independent feature in 1922. If the two men had continued their journey, they likely would have failed to overcome those obstacles and might well have died attempting to. Writing later about his feelings at this moment, Finch said, quote, Reasoned determination, confidence, faith in the possibility of achievement, hope, all had acquired cumulative force as we made our way higher and higher. The two nights' struggle at our camp had not dimmed our enthusiasm, nor had the collapse of Tejbir. Never for a moment did I think we would fail. Progress was steady, the summit was before us, a little longer, and we should be on top. And then, suddenly, unexpectedly, the vision was gone, end quote. The two climbers returned to Camp 5, picked up Tejbir, and then descended to Camp 4 on the North Col, where they met Wakefield and Crawford. Dr. Longstaff had recovered sufficiently that Wakefield had been relieved of medical duty and allowed to resume his role as climber. He and Crawford planned to attempt the summit, but Wakefield had administered morphine to Crawford to help him sleep and accidentally overdosed him. Crawford did indeed sleep well, but was in no shape to climb the next day. Wakefield and Crawford returned to Camp 3 without making a serious attempt. By this point, several of the climbers were out of commission, including Morshead, Norton, Finch, and Jeffrey Bruce. Mallory had developed a heart murmur because of the increased production of red blood cells in his body, and Dr. Longstaff determined it was ill-advised for him to make another attempt. Only Somerville was still healthy, but he couldn't climb alone. Mallory was despondent. He wanted another whack at the summit, this time using Finch's oxygen apparatus. Finch had proved how effective it was. He had climbed higher than Mallory under worse conditions with a less experienced team. Mallory's luck turned at the last moment, at the expense of Dr. Longstaff. The doctor's illness returned with a vengeance, and General Bruce relieved him of his duties as medical officer. As before, Wakefield replaced him. Wakefield was far more determined to see one of his colleagues reach the summit than Longstaff had been. He examined Mallory and reported to General Bruce that his heart murmur had resolved. He was fit to climb. Much has been made of Mallory's obsession with reaching the summit of Everest. It's hard to do a psychological profile on someone who died nearly a century ago, but snippets of his writing suggest that Mallory felt as if the mountain had a hold on him, and the feeling could, at times, be frightening. A personal obsession wasn't the only reason for going to Everest, however, and his reservations about joining in 1922, and again in 1924, hardly suggest a man possessed of an all-consuming pathological need to conquer the mountain. The Everest endeavor was seen as a patriotic effort, and Mallory likely saw it as his duty to use his talent and experience for the benefit of the empire. He was also a father of three without an income beyond what he earned from his Everest lecture tours. Mallory's friend Anne Bridge once described Mallory's climbing like this, quote, He was never a showy climber. He did not go in for the minute precisions of style at all. 
On the contrary, he seemed to move on rocks with a sort of large, casual ease, which was very deceptive when one came to try and follow him. When he was confronted with a pitch which taxed his powers, he would fling himself at it with a sort of angry energy, appearing to worry at it as a terrier worries a rat till he had mastered it. End quote. Simply put, Mallory loved the feeling of overcoming a challenge, and the thought of failure infuriated him. Is that obsessive? I'll leave it to you to decide. With the oxygenless summit attempt to failure, it was George Finch's turn. All he lacked was a team. Two men volunteered. Jeffrey Bruce, the general's brave nephew, who had never climbed a mountain in his life, and a Nepalese Gurkha soldier named Tejbir Bora. The three men, using Finch's oxygen system, made remarkable progress up the challenging North Coal Wall to Camp 4. After spending the night on the lower shelf, they embarked the next morning with their heavy oxygen equipment, easily overtaking the Sherpas who carried the other supplies from Camp 4 to Camp 5 without supplemental oxygen. Between Camps 4 and 5, Finch and his team began to experience one of the major issues that had tormented Mallory and his team, the relentless wind on the exposed North Ridge. Also like Mallory and his team, the wind forced them to move off the ridge to establish their own Camp 5. Their choice of campsite, though lacking in comfort, likely saved their lives as a terrible storm descended on the men. They remained awake in the tent all night, terrified, unable to sleep, constantly shifting their weight to make sure the wind did not get under the tent and lift it right off the mountain. During a brief lull in the storm, Finch managed to sneak out long enough to secure the tent with ropes. But there was nothing to do except pray that the wind would not tear the fabric of the tent to shreds with its ferocity. Around noon the following day, the storm had not abated, and in fact threw a stone with such force that it tore a hole in the tent, allowing the freezing cold air inside. An hour later, though, the storm at last subsided, and not a moment too soon. The men had a choice to make. They could return to Camp 4, or they could attempt the summit the next day, without food, since the Sherpas had not been able to reach their camp that morning. To their great surprise, however, six Sherpas appeared at 6 p.m. with food, thermoses full of hot tea, and most importantly of all, cigarettes. The three climbers decided they would remain at Camp 5 and attempt the summit the next day. That evening, Finch tried an experiment. He took a deep breath of oxygen right there in the tent to see what effect it would have. To his delight, he felt warmer almost immediately as his body stopped instinctively hoarding heat at its core. Jeffrey Bruce and Tejbeer were likewise instantly revived. Finch at last realized the connection between oxygen and body heat, but the breathing apparatus he had designed had a rubber tube at the end through which the oxygen flowed. The climber would bite down on the tube to stop the flow of oxygen, then relax his bite when he needed to take a breath. This was effective only if the men were awake. They couldn't do it in their sleep. The ever-resourceful Finch was able to rig a mechanism whereby all three men could breathe a small but continuous supply of oxygen during the night. They were finally able to get some restful sleep. The following day, the three men launched their ascent. The plan was for Tejbir to accompany Finch and Jeffrey Bruce as high as the juncture of the northeast shoulder, carrying spare oxygen, then turn around and leave the oxygen bottles with the two British climbers. But the plan fell apart almost immediately as Tejbir collapsed only a few hundred feet from camp. His companions were able to revive him and send him back to Camp 5 alone. Finch and Bruce continued to climb, but the wind rose again. They left the North Ridge and moved laterally across Everest's yellow band until they reached a position where they could ascend to the North Ridge. At some point during this ascent, they beat Mallory's team's altitude record. Finch must have felt vindicated, having been proven right about the benefits of supplemental oxygen. At that moment of triumph, disaster struck once again. 
A delicate glass tube within Bruce's breathing apparatus broke and his supply of oxygen immediately ceased. Bruce began to panic, as a scuba diver at the ocean floor might panic if their airflow suddenly ceased. As I said before, in 1922, even scientists and physicians who believed a climber might be able to survive a climb to the summit without bottled oxygen didn't know whether a climber would survive if their oxygen supply was disrupted. In his terror, Bruce nearly fell, but Finch managed to catch him. He let Bruce breathe from his own mouthpiece as he set about diagnosing and repairing Bruce's apparatus using a spare tube he had brought along in case of an emergency. He succeeded in restoring Bruce's oxygen and, simultaneously, proved that a climber at altitude suddenly deprived of oxygen could, in fact, continue breathing. But Finch knew his summit bid was ended. They were both exhausted and Bruce was badly rattled. Before they descended, however, Finch looked towards Northeast Ridge and identified two large stone formations that would need to be scaled or traversed en route to the summit pyramid. Even at that distance, in those circumstances, Finch knew those two steps might prove to be the greatest technical climbing challenge en route to the summit. He had gotten the first clear look at what we today call the first and second steps, which have defeated many climbers in the years since. There's also a third step, although it was not recognized as its own independent feature in 1922. If the two men had continued their journey, they likely would have failed to overcome those obstacles and might well have died attempting to. Writing later about his feelings at this moment, Finch said, quote, Reasoned determination, confidence, faith in the possibility of achievement, hope, all had acquired cumulative force as we made our way higher and higher. The two nights' struggle at our camp had not dimmed our enthusiasm, nor had the collapse of Tejbir. Never for a moment did I think we would fail. Progress was steady, the summit was before us, a little longer, and we should be on top. And then, suddenly, unexpectedly, the vision was gone. End quote. The two climbers returned to Camp 5, picked up Tejbir, and then descended to Camp 4 on the North Coal, where they met Wakefield and Crawford. Dr. Longstaff had recovered sufficiently that Wakefield had been relieved of medical duty and allowed to resume his role as climber. He and Crawford planned to attempt the summit, but Wakefield had administered morphine to Crawford to help him sleep and accidentally overdosed him. Crawford did indeed sleep well, but was in no shape to climb the next day. Wakefield and Crawford returned to Camp 3 without making a serious attempt. By this point, several of the climbers were out of commission, including Morshead, Norton, Finch, and Jeffrey Bruce. Mallory had developed a heart murmur because of the increased production of red blood cells in his body, and Dr. Longstaff determined it was ill-advised for him to make another attempt. Only Somerville was still healthy, but he couldn't climb alone. Mallory was despondent. He wanted another whack at the summit, this time using Finch's oxygen apparatus. Finch had proved how effective it was. He had climbed higher than Mallory under worse conditions with a less experienced team. Mallory's luck turned at the last moment, at the expense of Dr. Longstaff. The doctor's illness returned with a vengeance, and General Bruce relieved him of his duties as medical officer. As before, Wakefield replaced him. Wakefield was far more determined to see one of his colleagues reach the summit than Longstaff had been. He examined Mallory and reported to General Bruce that his heart murmur had resolved. He was fit to climb. Much has been made of Mallory's obsession with reaching the summit of Everest. It's hard to do a psychological profile on someone who died nearly a century ago, but snippets of his writing suggest that Mallory felt as if the mountain had a hold on him, and the feeling could, at times, be frightening. A personal obsession wasn't the only reason for going to Everest, however, and his reservations about joining in 1922, and again in 1924, hardly suggest a man possessed of an all-consuming pathological need to conquer the mountain. The Everest endeavor was seen as a patriotic effort, and Mallory likely saw it as his duty to use his talent and experience for the benefit of the empire. He was also a father of three without an income beyond what he earned from his Everest lecture tours. 
Mallory's friend, Anne Bridge, once described Mallory's climbing like this, quote, He was never a showy climber. He did not go in for the minute precisions of style at all. On the contrary, he seemed to move on rocks with a sort of large, casual ease, which was very deceptive when one came to try and follow him. When he was confronted with a pitch which taxed his powers, he would fling himself at it with a sort of angry energy, appearing to worry at it as a terrier worries a rat till he had mastered it, end quote. Simply put, Mallory loved the feeling of overcoming a challenge, and the thought of failure infuriated him. Is that obsessive? I'll leave it to you to decide. Mallory wasn't the only one under pressure as the expedition wound down. General Bruce had required a small fortune from the Everest Committee and had nothing more significant to show for it than a few altitude records. The men in London, who had no true sense of the conditions on the mountain, pestered him constantly by mail asking for progress reports. Then there was the issue of Tibetan politics. The British had given the Tibetans the weapons they had asked for. The promise of those weapons had been a significant factor in granting permission to the expeditions in the first place. Now the Tibetans had what they wanted, they might close the door again. There might not be another expedition after this one. What was true of Everest in 1922 has remained true ever since. When pride, money, and outside pressure take priority over safety, disaster follows. And all the little disasters the climbers had so far endured this season would pale in comparison to a disaster yet to come. On June 7th, at the very cusp of the monsoon season, new snow had fallen and the weather began to warm. Mallory and Somerville departed Camp 3 with 14 Sherpas. Noel and Crawford joined them to help ferry equipment to the top of the North Coal, and so Noel could take photographs from that elevated position. The men were roped together in three groups as they marched. As they crossed the snowy slope at the base of the North Coal, the snow was soft and deep. Noel was forced to abandon the trip. It was simply impossible to move his heavy photographic equipment through that kind of snow. He retreated to Camp 3 to watch. Before the men began to ascend to the top of the coal, Mallory and the other climbers tested the snow to gauge its stability. The fresh snow was wet, as happens when spring turns to summer, yet it seemed safe enough to the British climbers. Around 2 p.m., a deafening sound echoed through the valley, like a massive detonation, as an enormous slab of ice and snow, warmed by the heat of the June sun, cracked and broke free. It barreled down the slope towards the helpless climbers. Mallory, Somerville, Crawford, and their Tibetan assistant were instantly swallowed by the avalanche, which tumbled them end over end, gnashing and grinding them, burying them alive. The avalanche raced down, devouring the first and second teams of Sherpas as well. The final team of Sherpa could only have stood watching as a tidal wave of snow crashed into them, carrying them over the edge of a deep crevasse to plunge down into the bowels of the glacier itself. Mallory was alive, but trapped, upside down in the cold darkness. He worked his arms free and pulled himself to the surface, where he found his Sherpa beside him, also unharmed. Crawford and Somerville emerged a moment later. The four men quickly rushed to help the others and found the first team of four Sherpas. They had avoided the worst of the avalanche as well. The second team of four had been thrown into the crevasse, but were still close enough to the surface that a rescue might be attempted. The uninjured climbers began to dig and found the second Sherpa group. Of the four men on the rope, Two were badly injured, and two had been killed in the fall. The two injured men were rushed back to Camp 3 to be treated by Wakefield and survived. The last group, five Sherpas in all, would never be recovered. Lakpa, Norbu, Basang Namjin, Pema, Sanjay, Temba, and Thangke, the seven men who had been killed, were the first Sherpas to die on Everest. Teddy Norton, 
writing later about his experiences with the second Everest team, would describe the mountain like this, quote, she is a monster, a relic of primordial chaos, murderous and threatening, the home of devils, not of gods, end quote. There would not be another attempt that season. General Bruce, upon learning what had happened, ensured that the families of the men killed would be given military pensions. The four British men who were present that day visited the nearby Rongbuk Monastery and told the Lama what had happened. There were no recriminations or blame. In typical Tibetan Buddhist fashion, the monks saw no value in dwelling on what might have been. The entire expedition would spend another three weeks in the sacred Karta district, perhaps to cleanse themselves of the guilt they must surely have felt for their contribution to the catastrophe. George Mallory, the man who had insisted on the final attempt, who had faked his way through a medical evaluation to make it happen, who had led the team despite knowing the dangers of climbing so late in the season, was never able to forgive himself. He would write later in private letters, quote, The consequences of my mistake are so terrible, it seems almost impossible to believe that this has happened and that I can do nothing to make it good. Seven brave men killed, and they were ignorant of mountain dangers, like children in our care, and I am to blame. End quote. Mallory would carry that guilt until the day he died. We'll stop there for today. Join me again next time as the third expedition returns to Everest under a cloud of dark portents, and the final attempt to reach the summit culminates with the world's greatest mountaineer vanishing off the face of the earth and ignites a mystery which has endured for nearly a century. If you have any questions, comments, or corrections, please email me at deathzonepodcast at gmail.com or follow me on Instagram at Death Zone Podcast. Thank you for joining me, and I'll see you soon.